This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, October 4th. I'm Virginia Allen. An individual's childhood often shapes their gender identity. A healthy view of self and one's sex as a kid can carry into adulthood. But in the age of the LGBTQ agenda and the transgender movement, a lot of young people have been sent confusing messages about their sex. Elizabeth Wanning and Ken Williams are the founders of Changed Movement. Changed is a Christian organization based in California that works with people who are seeking to leave a homosexual lifestyle or who are struggling with their gender identity or same-sex attraction. They have recently released a new booklet called Self-Discovery, How Childhood Shaped Our Sexual Identity. The resource is intended to help the church and society as a whole understand how gender identity is formed in childhood. Ken and Elizabeth join me on the show today to talk about their work and how to help those struggling with gender identity. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. I'm Zach Smith. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It's SCOTUS 101. The Changed Movement is a Christian organization based in California that works with people who are seeking to leave the homosexual lifestyle or who are struggling with their gender identity or same-sex attraction. And we have actually featured the incredible work of the Changed Movement on this podcast several times. And so that's why today it's my absolute joy and pleasure to welcome back to the show Elizabeth Wanning and Ken Williams, the founders of Changed Movement. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Virginia. So for those who are not familiar with your work, who haven't heard your past conversations on this show, just share briefly what you all do. Well, we started out by just trying to minister to people that were coming, like you introduced us, like there are people in pain over their sexuality. And because those are the areas that God has addressed in our lives, and we found so much uh, peace that we didn't have before, we just wanted to help people feel better and to know God better and, and meet him in their struggle uh, but then moved on to trying to equip the church. And then legislation that was trying to be passed in California pulled us into that whole world. And uh, being that LGBT and uh, sexual orientation, gender identity issues are, are more and more coming into the law mm-hmm. today, then we're still, we're still addressing that because it, we feel like it's partly our responsibility to make sure that those who have convictions like us are able to get the counseling that they need and able to find resources. And so we are still addressing those issues as well. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about uh, three years ago, when I think was about the first time that you all joined the podcast for the first time. And at that time in history, uh, transgenderism wasn't really a big part of the conversation. I'm not, I'm not even sure we talked about it at all on that first podcast. And yet now it is everywhere and you know families are facing you know do i send my child to a school where you know behind closed doors they could be being called by different pronouns and right now the transgender conversation is is just exploding how has your work kind of shifted and changed as we've seen gender identity and transgenderism really explode across the country well i think that starting out it's it's 
cause us to focus on a better understanding of a biblical anthropology. Hmm. Um, we are pastors in Northern California, and at our church, we have a ministry school, and I teach in that ministry school often a sexual ethics course focused. I, I try to use predominantly or mainly the teachings of Jesus. And early in the in the series of classes, I start with just talking about the incarnation of Jesus and the miracle of the human body. And we kind of talk about how our bodies are part of our personality. Like we actually can't separate ourselves into some psyche that's separate from our bodies. Our mm -hmm. bodies are responsible for a great deal of our personality. And that it was it's interesting always how that impacts my class. Hmm. Just the revelation of how our body chemistry, our our hormone system, our procreative system informs our sense of being, not just well-being, but being. And and so we're we're watching I think we've watched over the last several years this incredible escalation of what I call the virtualization of self. Hmm. And um, this kind of dualism, maybe, that we talk about. And I think that it's causing us to question what it means to be human. And yeah. and so in the context of our organization, being able to say to someone who experiences same-sex attraction or some kind of gender incongruence, you're a man among men. You're a woman among women. Many people who have the LGBT experience don't feel that. Hmm. They don't feel connected to their own gender, even if they don't experience gender dysphoria or identify as trans. Many people who identify as lesbian or gay just don't feel like, <laughs> we had a good friend um, who would say, I don't feel like I have my man card. Mm. And so just um, speaking more and more about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman and um, inviting people to, to discover that anthropology through Christ. That's very practical, I think, to give people just that knowledge to really empower them with uh, with tools and with information that that's not really talked about a lot, especially not in mainstream. And one of the conversations that you all have just delved headfirst into is is really how childhood affects and shapes our view of our sexuality and gender. Um, and you all have actually just created a booklet called Self-Discovery, How Childhood Shaped Our Sexual Identity. Share just a little bit about uh, about that, about how what happens to us as kids does kind of determine how we see our sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, we're really, we are named, changed. That's such a provocative and even painful name for many people who experience LGBT. Um, we, we did that because of the context in which we were born. We were trying to make a point in the Sacramento setting. We didn't really realize at the time that we were going to be creating or we would become a part of this massive movement of people that we're now connected to. And so many people, when they think of, uh, think of changed, they think, oh, you're going from gay to straight. And you're, you're therefore um, either experiencing some kind of miraculous transformation or you're trying to force someone um, into this new reality that's impossible. But for all of us who have left LGBT and have moved on, like Ken, Ken how long have you been married to Tiffany? 16 years. 16 mm -hmm. years. And you guys have 
four kids. And, and, you know, I've been married to my husband for 17 years, and neither one of us, uh, same-sex feelings are no longer a dominating part of our lives. Mm -hmm. Like, it... I wouldn't say it's impossible for us to experience same-sex attraction, but it's I, – I can't remember the last time, actually, that I had some kind of trigger like that. And, and so for all of us who have made really dramatic shifts in our sexual desires, um, we've gotten there by re-understanding our childhood. Hmm. And many of us through – whether it's simply um, prayerful pastoral care or it's an actual therapy appointment – We've delved into the traumas of our lives, the challenges, the self-perceptions that we have um, born out of our childhood, the hurts from our childhood. And um, as we have successfully resolved some of those hurts, we've experienced shifts in our desires. And the reality is that for all of us, we, we understand the sexual attractions as really an effort to get a legitimate need mm-hmm. met. It's not necessarily a sexual desire that's at the root. It's a relational issue. Hmm. It's a desire for deep intimacy and connection to another person that is often at the root. And so rediscovering how did I get here is a major part of unraveling the whole LGBT identity in all of our lives. And really, when you start to maybe accept that you were molested or understand um, family dynamics or what the impact of porn was or the impact of bullying or any of it's the complexity of all those things taken together Um, when you start to understand those then the the mantra you were born this way really falls apart Mm -hmm. and really uh, science supports that science has never been able to conclusively um, explain why people have same-sex attraction. And and I like to point people to the study that was published by Science Magazine in 2019 by Andrea Gana, looking at the whole human genome in search of a gay gene. They didn't find a gay gene. What they found was um, human sexuality really can't be isolated to a single gene. It's it's spread across many genes. And mm-hmm. so in the end, what what they realized is that LGBT identifying people have no unique or significant difference genetically than anyone else. And their, you know, their abstract says, well, what that tells us is that it's environmental factors. It's all the things that happen on top of a person's biology that really are impacting the development of our sexual identity. Yeah. And, and so can, you, can we figure out what those are? And, and so leading to our booklet, I thought, right now in the context of all of this anti-discrimination language that we're seeing come across, maybe from the Biden administration, um, legislation everywhere, the Title IX conversation, this push to really confirm LGBT identity among children is very coercive. Mm. What we're doing is not allowing children to really explore their sexuality before labeling them as LGBT or Q or anything else and suggesting that at seven or eight, you could know precisely um, something about your identity that really takes years to develop and understand. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, in this booklet, what I, what I sought to do was call into question why we're trying to push children into this LGBT identity and then disclose or, more, or clarify what some of uh, what it looks like to rediscover your childhood so that you realize you weren't just born this way. Mm. I wondered if I could read one of the stories. I was going to actually ask you to share some stories because I, I know you all have, over the years, both as pastors and as the founders of Change Movement, you all have worked and journeyed with hundreds, if not thousands of individuals. And so I would love to hear, like, what what are some of those stories that you all hear and even some of kind of the most common themes that you all see of how, you know, we are so affected and impacted by trauma in our childhood that might lead to someone believing that they're in in that category of LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I like to say is, you know, there, there may be a temperament um, element. There may be an element of biology involved, like temperament is really born out of our whole lineage, like we get that from our family. But it's what happens on top of that and how you perceive it, hmm. what your interpretation is of those experiences that I think are the largest factor in leading you to adopt an LGBT identity and pushing you towards sexualizing some of these relationships. So um, this initiative that we've called Self Discovery um, is a downloadable booklet. You can find it at our website. And really on our website, mostly what we do is collect testimonies. So you can find, um, I don't I haven't counted how many are on there. You know, there's well over 100 testimonies on our website that you can find and read. But on the self-discovery page, what we've isolated are your childhood experiences. Mm. Um, And so I'm just going to read one of the stories. This is Dr. Linda Seiler's story. She um, she never transitioned, but from a very young age, she felt like she was a boy Mm. born into a girl's body. And so let me just read this. Mm When I was born, my mother was conflicted about having a daughter instead of a son. As a young child, my mom's unspoken desire influenced my life, and my mother and I never fully connected emotionally. I remember feeling frustrated by her expectations while at the same time longing for her affection and attention. My mother loved me deeply, but I interpreted our disconnect as rejection, which heightened my attention toward my father. He offered safety and stability, and I desired to be like him growing up. Yet he was not consistently emotionally available and couldn't fill this void. I desperately longed for a deeper connection with my mom, and when I couldn't create it, rejected her as a defense to protect my heart. As I grew older, I attempted to replace my need for her nurture through sexual fantasies and connections with women a twisted and confused tether to female intimacy. Most devastating, my rejection of her grew into a rejection of myself. I grew up feeling emotionally abandoned, leaving me vulnerable and in need, so when a female junior high teacher showed inappropriate interest, I became fixated on her. What should have been a student-teacher relationship became something wholly different. She shared with me things that were not appropriate, and planted seeds of confusion in my heart and mind. Childhood sexual abuse greatly impacted my view of my sexuality and how I perceived the sexuality of others. Some friends introduced me to pornography in grade school, which awakened in me desire and intrigue. 
However, I wanted to be the man, not the woman, in what I saw portrayed in pornography. In fourth grade, I heard about sex change operations, now called gender confirmation surgeries. That's the answer to my dilemma, I thought. I believed changing my gender would give me freedom and decided when I had the means to become a boy, I would change my name to David and live happily ever after. Hitting puberty in junior high was devastating. I despised my changing body. Not only did I want to be male, but I began to develop jealousy of my male peers. Their voices were changing and their male characteristics were becoming more defined. In addition, around this time, I was becoming increasingly attracted to women. This affirmed my belief that I truly was a male trapped in a female body, but it was a helpless feeling I couldn't control and I didn't want. I tried to rationalize my life by myself and kept these feelings hidden from my parents and others. Fear of telling my family and the drama of coming out were the biggest hindrances to telling the truth about what I was feeling. I didn't know how to communicate and sharing with people, especially my family, felt impossible. This looming secrecy felt like rejection. I knew I would be lonely and isolated living the life I wanted without my family and friends around me. So I decided not to have the operation and tried my best to fit in. Resigned to living a miserable life of incongruency with my gender, I thought depression and suicidal feelings were my lot. Taking cues from my sister on how to be a girl, I hoped growing my hair out and experimenting sexually with boys would cure my confusion. The opposite happened. I became intensely jealous, wanting to be the guy with the girl, not the girl with the guy. When I received Christ late in high school, I thought all my feelings of wanting to live a different life would disappear. Sadly, this didn't happen. My double life persisted faking it until I partially made it, until I confided in a pastor whose kindness and sensitivity pointed me to counseling. Counseling opened up a new world of self-understanding, emotional healing, and self-discovery. The life-dominating struggle of gender dysphoria and same-sex sexual feelings has faded, and today these are no longer a struggle. My childhood detachment from mom created a deep longing for a female connection. Eventually, I realized that my attraction to female affection was rooted in my desire to be genuinely connected to her. To satisfy the need for an intimate connection to femininity, I sexualized relationships with women. I saw the admirable qualities in them that I felt inadequate in or incapable of. Engaging physically and sexually with women was the only way I could see myself attaining those attributes. I was blind to the beauty of who I was and the characteristics about me that were worth loving and cherishing. I saw lack and thought finding someone with what I needed and wanted would make me whole. There had been a deep wound of rejection of myself that I carried. I didn't feel comfortable in my gender and therefore I rejected it. I hated my own body and couldn't embrace femininity as my own. My self-perception of my own gender was that the deficiencies greatly outweighed the good. I wasn't female. I wasn't a girl. I desired to express my femininity in strength and confidence, but felt less capable. I started to see that my attractions became the breadcrumbs to a wound on the inside. I wanted to connect with feminine love. 
This was the place I longed desperately to share with my mother. Eventually, my faith enabled me to face this need. I met mature women whom God used as spiritual mothers to affirm my femininity and womanhood, which enabled me to diffuse sexual desires for other women. In my mid-30s, I began developing attraction to men. Today, I have an understanding of my feelings and the myriad of temptations that come my way. I can healthily address both intrapersonal and interpersonal situations that arise and no longer struggle with same-sex attraction. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it, uh, it's just incredible to, to hear that full journey that she went on. And I think those aha moments of, oh, this is where that all started and was coming from. And I mean, that's, that's not, um, I imagine that that's not too uncommon of a story, right? That as a young child, you have needs from a parent for affection and love. And if those aren't met, things can get warped uh, mm-hmm. and you look for those elsewhere. Yeah. And Linda, she has wonderful parents. She didn't have an abusive situation. She, her mom wanted to connect with her, yeah. but Linda's self-perception disrupted mm. that, mm. you know? And so like, can we just start to open up this conversation for people to better understand themselves rather than being pigeonholed into this identity that seems to offer affirmation and care and Mm -hmm. belonging you know most of us who've delved into the lgbt world have found a great sense of relief from belonging and and feeling seen but then you never go through this journey of discovering how you got there yeah and often um like one of the stories in the booklet is david reese um he was abused over molested over 10 years Mm -hmm and um, didn't really recognize it as molestation mm-hmm. until he met a pastor who said, wait, what was your youngest, how old were you when you had your first sexual encounter? And he was able to say something like four or five, wow. very, very young, maybe even younger than that. Wow. And realizing, wait, that, that's unusual, that's, that's abuse. Okay. Yeah. And, and so just unraveling all those things, if he hadn't have been able to address that molestation and recognize that that was abuse, then in his male sexual encounters, he would just be reliving that same trauma mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over and over. And the expectation would be that he somehow would be okay or better if he pursued those kinds of relationships as opposed to trying to resolve them. Today, he and his wife have been married for 12 years, wow. and they have two beautiful children together. Well, and that ability to unravel the story, whether it be with a pastor or with a counselor, is, I think, uh, really at the heart of so many of the stories that you all tell in, in the booklet that are on your website. Um, and yet we're seeing that that counseling is really under attack across mm-hmm. the country. And I know that this is an issue you all have been on the forefront of for years in California and now really across the country. Um, So some have kind of labeled this counseling conversion therapy and we hear about conversion therapy bans. So share just briefly, if you would, about kind of the the status across the country of, you know, where are the states where they're saying if someone's struggling with LGBTQ as a counselor, as a pastor, you can't kind of intervene and push back on that and question that identity. I just want to jump in and say, 
you know, our heart, of course, is for healing. Our heart is for well-being for people. That's why that's why we left our, the, our lives maybe in the corporate world and have leaned into pastoral is because mm-hmm. we care about how people feel. And um, that's part of why we put together the self-discovery booklet and do everything we do is to get the message out there that, look, if you're in pain, uh, counseling can help. Knowing the Lord more deeply and inviting him into these painful areas of our lives can bring uh, fulfillment, peace, change. And the, what's so sad about the, quote, conversion therapy conversation is that there's so much left out of the conversation. There, there are f- words and phrases thrown out without any clarification about what that actually means. And, um, and that's why the self-discovery booklet, we open all of that up so that you can say, okay, what are we specifically talking about as far as what happens to people and what God can do to address it? Um, Elizabeth, you can talk if you want about the the specifics of some of the. I know there's the Therap- Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act. I think is one, and there's ones in different states. But we really have to start being clear about what kind of therapies are happening out there, and whether it's beneficial or not. Instead of putting a label on it and just deleting yeah. all of it, yeah, throwing what throwing the baby, the baby out, out with the bathwater. Bath yes, you know because I mean. On the most superficial level, a therapy ban essentially is saying, hey, if you have LGBT identifying feelings, it's illegal for you to leave that culture or worldview or seek an alternative for yourself. Um, Any place where there is a counseling ban in the United States. And then most of the counseling bans are directed towards children. Mm. And and. As I've just described, that's honestly the place where children need children need the most help and guidance, partially because um, organizations like the American Psychological Association have really become major proponents of the LGBT identity and LGBT um, identifying community. Um, There really isn't, there isn't much professional teaching or educational or education offered to counselors who are willing to help people with unwanted same-sex desires or gender incongruence. And and so in the vacuum um, that's been created, there's a whole lot of misleading care out there or misperceptions that have arisen. And so a lot of people who experience LGBT, um, people don't know how to help, Mm. right? And you go to a church and often we know that we pray and we pray and we pray, but then when you when you pursue the Lord and you pray for freedom from these feelings and you don't get that breakthrough, sometimes because you have this huge backstory that needs, yeah. the Lord wants to unravel with you. It's not a simple fix. Like I have a friend um, who would say, look, if I came to the altar and immediately has had an experience of, of breakthrough, um, I still wouldn't know how to um, establish a healthy relationship with a man. Yeah. <laughs> and so the Lord doesn't often work that way. I and mean, we've, we've met and talked to people who have had miraculous experiences, but the majority of us need a, a rebirth experience. We need to be reborn into a new identity as a son or a daughter of God and journey that out like everyone else, allowing the Lord to expose the places that most need his touch. And so um, I think it's in the vacuum of understanding 
and the lack of real professional understanding and research that um, a lot of people have been hurt. And and I'm not, we would never deny that harm has happened. Mm -hmm. But mostly what we hear from like Trevor Foundation and others is um, this hyperbolic language that there are aversive techniques, you're being sent off to a camp or, um, yeah, those kinds of things ended 30 years ago. Those, you know, APA used techniques like that, aversive techniques, um, but that ended so long ago. And, but yet that's being used to kind of force the door to close for people who might want alternatives. And, and I think one of the biggest crises in America right now is childhood sexual abuse generally, not just related mm-hmm. to people who end up developing uh, LGBT feelings. Um, that's not being looked at quite closely enough. And we have a school system that's ready and eager to sexualize children and teach them how to have sex together at very young ages. And so um, the harms of that we're watching unfold in the LGBT com- community as suicide rates increase. You know, the more affirming our culture is becoming, the higher the suicide rate. Yeah. <laughs> and so, oh. you know, um, so interesting. Yeah. I wanted to draw your attention to a study that was just released uh, last week or the week before in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, a study done by Dr. Paul Solins. Often when we hear about these therapy bans, which, you know, I want to say for a church environment, the bottom line, wherever there's a conversion therapy ban, there's a restriction on our ability to even express and encourage a biblical sexual ethic. The bottom line is it restricts religious freedom. Mm -hmm. It's not specifically restricting or not necessarily only restricting a certain type of counseling. It effectively stops free speech. Um, at its worst, we're seeing that in Canada right now, where it's mm-hmm. criminal to even encourage someone to find help. Which is tantamount to uh, sexuality being mandated by the state. Yeah. For someone like me or Elizabeth, mm-hmm. it means you shall not follow your convictions. You shall not honor your conscience. You may not practice your religion. Uh, I can't imagine what that would have been like for me growing up in, you know, current day in yeah. Canada. And it's like, oh, you have a convict. You, you have this way that you're separated from the other males mm-hmm. and you've never felt like you've been able to be a part. Therefore, you don't see yourself as a legitimate male. Therefore, you develop these feelings and you may not pursue anything but this one path that's being mandated for you. Mm. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, I had that's to throw really that in. We're yeah. passionate about that because every person needs to have choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so going to this study, one of the big studies, scientific studies that is used to undergird a conversion therapy ban is um, a study done by the Williams Institute, which is uh, a, an arm of UCLA. And they published in, I think, in 2020, a study that um, used what's called the generations data. It was a federally funded study on LGB wellness over a few generations. And so that data is public record. It's publicly accessible. And the outcome of their study was that um, sexual orientation change efforts, or some called SOCI, um, cause higher rates of suicidality. And, and so everywhere you go, with that, 
that study is referenced in legislation or in rhetoric. Well, Dr. Sullins, who is an emeritus professor from Catholic University, he is a researcher for the Ruth Institute, which is a Catholic family organization. He began, um, he will say, I'm just a skeptic. <laughs> so Dr. Sullins is a sociologist. He began looking at the outcomes in these, of these studies and began reinvestigating. He reran all of the statistics that they concluded. And, in, and what he discovered was that they didn't control for pre-sexual orientation change efforts, suicidality. Hmm. So before you, he, they didn't control for the number of people who were suicidal and went to get help yeah. and the effect. Instead, they just blocked that out. Ignored they did it. it. They yeah. ignored it. And just said, how many people after um, after seeking this help were suicidal or had suicidal feelings? And so when you control for the number of people who were suicidal before they sought help, as much as, let me see, it says, um, this is a quote from the abstract, undergoing SOCI after expressing suicidal behavior reduced subsequent suicide attempts from 72 to 80 percent compared to those not undergoing SOCI when SOCI followed a prior expression of suicidal ideation. 72 to 80% reduction in suicidal feelings wow. after seeking help. Mm. As opposed to the claim that these, this treatment causes suicide, yeah. <laughs> it in fact reduces it. Wow, wow. Now, actually, I, I just love that you all are on the forefront of this, that you're sharing information like this, that you're speaking truth. And through things like the self-discovery booklet, you're putting tools in the hands of, of individuals who are struggling, of parents, of teachers, of pastors, of counselors. Because uh, I think right now we're at a moment where everyone knows someone, right? Everyone knows someone who's struggling in some way, um, has a family member, a friend, someone in their church. And so to have something practical to say, okay, I, I can help this person move forward. I can send them resources mm -hmm. um, is huge. So I really want to encourage everyone to visit uh, changemovement.com to get the booklet, to learn more about what you all do, mm -hmm. to get those resources. And I really want to thank you all for yeah. your time today. Oh, thank you so much. It's always such a, an honor to be able to be here. Yeah. Thank oh. you, Virginia. They can also follow us on Instagram as well. Awesome. What's your handle on Instagram? Changed Movement. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys so much. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't gotten a chance already, be sure to check out our afternoon show where we bring you the top news of the day every day at 5 p.m. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach so many more listeners when you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be right back here with you all this afternoon at 5 p.m. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Rank. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.